pray that you all have a very meaningful study time. We, on the other hand, are going to be looking at several different things. If you didn't know, June the 9th this year is going to be Pentecost Sunday. Uh, I thought it would be interesting for us to do a series on Pentecost Sunday for the next several weeks uh, so that we can talk about some of the various nuances of the story that perhaps we're unfamiliar with or challenged by. And and to be honest, uh, we've discovered that there's a lot of people who are just terrified about the whole topic. And so Uh, The only reason a person could be terrified of Scripture is if they don't know the Scriptures in my book. So we're going to spend some time unfolding various nuances of this passage of Scripture. And so leading up to June the 9th, um, hopefully we'll have a deeper understanding and appreciation for what's going on. So for today, we're going to talk about uh, a concept that some don't understand, that some struggle with, and others don't think anything about. Uh, We're going to be talking about the Spirit-filled life, the Spirit-filled life in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to go to Acts chapter 6, if you would, so that we can look at some things that I think are highly interesting. We're going to look at Judges chapter 15. We're going to look at Luke chapter 10. We're going to bounce around quite a bit today. So I want to start with uh, Acts chapter 6. We, we hear a story about an issue that has developed in the early church. And remember, this is still in the early church. Christ left the earth probably around 33 uh, A.D. And so this is probably, oh, I'm guessing um, 60 to 70 A.D. when this particular event happens. Um, but the issue that has developed is this. It says that in those days when the number of disciples were increasing... A disciple, a disciple is a follower of Christ, someone who has been recently converted to the Christian faith and is now part of the way is what it's referenced to up until the time of Antioch. But, uh, but these, these disciples were increasing in number. We have to also assume, and we're going to talk about this, that not only are they increasing in number, but they're increasing in strength and in maturity as well. Uh, our spiritual... Our spiritual vitality is fluid. We are never, and the scriptures never imply that when you become a Christian, that that is the exact state and the exact same measure of Christianity that you will always be for the rest of your life. Because every relationship has the ability to increase or to decrease uh, in connection to how much time we invest into that relationship. So we have to understand that when we become Christians, that we have an opportunity that we can study and pray and grow in our faith and understanding, and in essence, grow closer to the Lord. Or by just mere negligence, we can become deficient in our relationship with the Lord. And we can begin a process of drifting away from him by just forsaking the study and the prayer and the worship and all those other things that go in hand to hand with that. So we understand that when we become Christian that we can do this. We can either decrease or increase uh, as is really the desire of our own heart. Unfortunately, God doesn't have a whole lot of say-so in it at that time 
because he gives us free will to determine if we want to be closer and stronger or if we want to be further away and weaker. So that's all up to us. So in those days when the disciples were increasing numerically and spiritually, the Greek Jews among them complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the problem is this. We know, we don't, we're not trying to be derogatory about the Jewish people at this time in history. They did a good job of making themselves look derogatory. But they were extremely judgmental and extremely biased to people who were not 100% Jew. That's why there's so much tension between the Samaritans and the Jews. Because the whole story goes is that when they were put in diaspora and, and the Jews were being disciplined by God at the hands of the Babylonians and the Syrians and whoever else, during their time of punishment in the Old Testament, while they were gone, some of the people left behind intermarried with the Samaritans or intermarried with those who were there at that time. And so basically by intermarrying, they became half Jews. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on that. Just know that throughout the Gospels, there's a big issue with Samaritans, the half-Jews, because they were not 100% pure Jewish. Okay. With that said, we have a similar situation when there are Greek-speaking Jews. They're called Hellenistic Jews. They originated from Italy or from some of those other regions around there. Because remember, the Romans were in power at that time, and they were very domineering, and they they implored the Greek uh, language upon all who would, uh, who would receive it. But the, the Hebrew Jews still maintained the integrity that, no, we refuse to speak Greek. We are Hebrew Jews. So there's a little bit of a rift between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. And let's be honest, there should never be a rift in church, right? We should all be one. We should be unified in Christ, right? Yes. We know that there's other passages in Ephesians that talks about that. So the Greek Jews were complaining to the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being neglected in regards to the daily distribution of food. Huge no-no. Scriptures talk very clearly. We did a sermon on this about four or five months ago about how it is a mandate that all believers take care of our widows. They should be a top priority. Widows and children, always top priority. So it goes on to say, so the 12 disciples gathered all of the disciples together. Now, these are the original 12, but they have gathered various others because, remember, the number of disciples are increasing. So they brought them all together, and they said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So they're basically just saying, and this is not a sin, They're just saying, look, we have a huge responsibility, preaching the gospel, bringing people to faith, uh, utilizing the sacraments of communion and baptism. And then, of course, there's the mentoring and the discipleship that goes along with teaching people how to be Christian. This is a very important work. So in order for us to maintain our responsibilities, it's not good for us to forsake that in order to wait tables. So here is the solution to the remedy. Or the remedy to you anyway, do you know what I'm saying? They say, brothers, choose seven men from among you 
who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And that's where I want us to pause right now. Choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. We don't have to really dig very deep to understand this is a very clear distinction. The assumption is by declaring this that not every believer, not every Christian is spirit-filled. Understand that. It says it right here in the language. Choose six or seven, seven of them from among you who are known to be spirit-filled. In other words, don't just pick anybody. We want them to be spirit-filled. We'll talk about that distinction in a little bit. If every believer was spirit-filled, there's no need to make this comment. But the thing that really stands out to me is this. When it comes to food distribution, is it really important to be spirit-filled? Filled with wisdom in regards to waiting tables, as the disciples put a few verses before? You see, this just opens up all kinds of confusion to me. And basically, it implies that within the ministries of the church, that we should really be very careful that we just throw anybody and everybody at a responsibility. It it insinuates that not everybody really should be in the Lord's service until they come to a point where they're spirit-filled. That's interesting to me. That implies that it's possible there could be people, even pastors, at work in the church who are not spirit-filled and, and as it insinuates, not completely qualified or equipped to doing the work that they're doing in the life of the church. Now, I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody except myself. Because for many, many years, I did the work of ministry by my own strength. I did it by my own wisdom. I went to seminary and they taught me how to be a pastor, how to put together a sermon, how to do a hospital visit, how to conduct a wedding service and a funeral service. They taught me how to do basic counseling techniques. They taught me how to study the Bible. They taught me how to, how to evangelize and why to evangelize. And they, they taught me very well. I was very pleased with my education. And then when I went to my first church to be a pastor, I realized how ill-equipped I still was. I still didn't have any idea what I was doing, and I had absolutely no confidence. Never did I hear about the concept of being spirit-filled. Because I was raised in a tradition that, well, when you're baptized, you get the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that's not true. It is true. At baptism, you're given the Holy Spirit. And it will stay with you all the days that you want it there. I personally believe, especially in Hebrews 5 and 6, that it is possible to sacrifice that, to give up your salvation if you don't want it. Of course, then you get into semantics. Why would anybody do that if they're truly saved? Well, that's semantics. We'll leave that aside. But because God is a God of free will, he's never going to force his agenda upon anybody. 
And if a person who is negligent in their walk with the Lord is drifting away from God and they enjoy drifting away from God and they don't want to go to church, they don't want to read their Bible, they don't want to pray, eventually they just might get to the point where they think to themselves, you know what, I really don't want to go to heaven. And because God is a God of free will, he's not going to force that on anybody. So he's going to let you drift as far as you possibly want to. Now, I don't believe, I'll just say this, I don't believe it's possible to, to accidentally lose your salvation. I think it comes at the point where you defiantly say, I don't want it. And at that point, God will say, fine, you don't have to. But the scriptures speak to me on this and say this is a probability if you continue to get in the chute of neglect and deficiency. And and if that's true, isn't it also possible that when you're baptized in water, that the spirit inside of you, that it also has the ability to decrease or increase as you spend time with the Lord? And is it possible that, that 50 years after your point of water baptism, if you've done nothing to keep the fires kindled within your own spirit, isn't it possible that you could be borderline spiritually deficient as a believer in the body of Christ? I think that should scare every one of us. And I'll tell you, I'm just pointing at myself, for many years I was taught that when a person's baptized, you baptize them into the church for membership. I never focused on the fact that in in Jesus' baptism, in John's baptism, that it says, I just forgot what I was going to say now. Um, It says that this is a baptism of repentance. You're baptized into Christ through repentance Not just so you can go to heaven, but so that heaven will come into you here on earth. So so we are so eternally focused that we're no earthly good. We're so eternally focused that here on earth, we don't give two, two shakes about the church or the responsibilities of the church or the needs of the church because we're so selfish. I'm going to heaven. That's all that matters to me. The rest of you, you can figure this stuff out. I'm out of here. But that's not what baptism's about. That's not what the spiritual life is about. Jesus wants us to have abundant life is what the scriptures speak to me. And abundant life comes by jumping in feet and all, just completely immersing yourself in the Holy Spirit and saying, you know what? I want as much of God as I can get. I want as much of Jesus as I can have. I want as much of the Holy Spirit involved in my life that is humanly possible. That is when your life will be radically changed and the ministry that you're doing for others is always or is also going to be highly effective. It's been puzzling to me, and this is why I came to this point, you know, after 28 years of ministry. Why is it that in so many churches people don't want to serve? Why is it that people don't want to get involved? Why is it that people... Uh, when they do get involved and they do serve, they do such a terrible job of it. And it's because their heart's not in it. Because they're not doing it because of their love of the Father or because of what Jesus has done for them, but it's because of neglect, because they're guilted into it. They're, 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 they're taught and they're beat over the head with this concept of obedience, 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 that they feel like if I'm not obedient, then I'm not a very good church member. Well, I will say personally, 
I don't want people to serve because they're just being obedient. I want them to serve because they love Jesus and they love the church and they love the people they serve because that's when it's going to make a difference. But we don't have that. Choose seven from among you for the sake of food distribution who are spirit-filled. In other words, they're not spiritually deficient. They have so much of God in them that they're filled to capacity. Now, here's an interesting concept. They're filled to the point where their heart is overflowing with the Holy Spirit. And out of the overflow, they do ministry for others, which means that they're never going to run dry in their own spirit because they're not depending on their own strength, but on the strength of God inside of them. Huge, huge difference, huge difference. So, so they did this. They found seven people who were known to be full of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a whole different concept I don't have a lot of time to dig into. But this isn't something where people say, well, I think Joe Smith might be filled with the Holy Spirit, or I think that, that, that Nancy, Nancy Johnson might be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, it's not any of that. We know for a fact they're Spirit-filled. How do you know that? Because you can see it in their faces. You hear it in the words they speak. You see it in how it's displayed. They don't gossip. They don't backbite. They don't, they're never bitter. They never complain. They just keep loving people and loving God. And, and here's what's interesting. Now, if this were to happen today, if we're in a board meeting and I would say, okay, we need a Sunday school teacher. Choose someone from among yourselves who is spirit-filled we would get into all kinds of debate. And I'm telling you, I would have arrows I'd be like digging out of me because I would be shot down. But look what it says here in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They thought to themselves, this is a good idea. Let's do that. Let's take seven people who are spirit-filled, distinct from the others, and give them this responsibility of food distribution specialist. And let them serve the tables and take care of the widows. One of those was a man by the name of Stephen. If you look down in verse 8, it says this about Stephen. Stephen was a man full of God's grace. And power. He did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. And he was just a food distribution specialist. If he has the qualifications like this and he's in food distribution, I wonder what the pastor was like. Well, in this case, uh, I don't think it was Paul yet, so it's probably still Peter or John. Pretty good shoes to fill, I would say. It says, though, that because he was spirit-filled, the opposition arose. This is important. Why in the world would opposition arise to a person who's spirit-filled? Well, you have to know where the opposition's coming from. You see, when Jesus came onto the scene, there was already an established church called the the Church of the Jews, right? Right? And and, and so the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin ran the church of the Jewish people. And when Jesus came onto the scene, even though he was Jewish, he did not want to become part of the established church because they were spiritually dead. 
They were lifeless. The Pharisees were politicians. They were manipulators. They thought of themselves more highly than everybody else in the, in the synagogue. And they wanted everybody to look up to them and treat them with royalty. Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. Jesus thought that was really sinful. And the Pharisees would say, won't you come spend time with us? Come have dinner with us. And Jesus says, no thanks, I'm busy. And he would go and have dinner with the sinners. And they hated him for that. They despised him for that. But it was more than just the fact that he, he hung out with sinners. It was because he was anti-church, anti-established high church, Judaism, dead to the world church. He, was, he despised the way they were doing ministry. He despised the fact that the Pharisees acted like their flatulence had no odor. You know what I'm saying? He despised that. Because they weren't loving people, they were loving themselves. The church had become a political structure, and, and they were being absolutely no effect, there was no effectiveness on earth. He despised them for that. The Pharisees were more concerned about protecting the history and the reputation of the church than they were saving lives, loving people, and making a difference in this world. That's a danger for every church. We should never, no church should ever be so focused on the past deliberately celebrating our past victories and our past accomplishments at the, at the cost of focusing on the people who are hurting now in the future and the present. We have to forsake the past and quit trying to pat ourselves on the back. We got to keep our focus forward. And that's hard. It's hard when we're not spirit-filled. I'm getting off on a tangent, so we better shift a little bit. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 3. This is just the one little nugget of Pentecost Sunday. I think it's important for us to pull out of the text. And I also want to bring up another point I forgot. Pharisees were typically eisegetical people. Spirit-filled people are typically exegetical, right? And we all know what that means, right? All right, so here's the difference. An exegetical person is a person who reads the text and pulls out of the text what is important to feed on for that day. An eisegetical person has an agenda that they read into the text to make the text match what their theology wants to embrace. All right? So Pharisees, religious people in general who are so earthly focused and so church protective that they don't care about the needs of others, those same people become very eisegetical, reading out of the text or, or putting into the text what they want it to say in order to make themselves look better. So we're going to pull out one verse here. We're not putting anything in. We're just pulling one verse out. And it says that they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. This all coming at the beginning, and it said, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like a blowing of violent wind came, and the whole place, the house, was filled where they were sitting. 
and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest. If you look in the scriptures, and in the NIV anyway, you'll find 13 references throughout the Bible of the phrase spirit-filled. Every one of them up until the time of Christ is a little bit unique than those after the time of Christ. Uh, Particularly like King Saul. King Saul, when he was anointed to be the first king of Israel, the Holy Spirit came upon him. And when he sinned and, and neglected Samuel the prophet's instructions, the Spirit of God left him. So up until the time of Christ, the Holy Spirit was transient. It was fluid in the fact that it was not permanent. When Jesus came, he was baptized in the water and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove and it rested upon him, meaning he was the first one in history to receive the Holy Spirit and then keep it. Then he instructed his disciples that after I raise from the dead, you go to Jerusalem away from me and the Holy Spirit will come to you. And here it is, Pentecost Sunday, and the Spirit descends upon them and it rests upon their heads. It stuck with them. And again, the, the, the whole mindset here is that they embraced it. They wanted it. They enjoyed it. They were led by it. They were empowered by it. And they wanted more of it. They wanted as much as they could get because it was amazing. Not like today when so many churches are terrified of the Holy Spirit. This is actually something I came across, and this is really cool, but this is also indicative of religious people. Religious people have a different Holy Trinity than we do because we would say the Holy Trinity is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? But for the religious, the Holy Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Scriptures. They've actually made the Scriptures more imperative than the Holy Spirit, and the Scriptures are not even a person. And it's certainly not connected to the Godhead. It is the spoken word of God, yes, but never to be elevated above the Holy Spirit. But you see, the Scriptures are safer. So we'll we'll find things and we'll read into the text and say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit was just for the disciples and the apostles at the time of Pentecost. It disappeared after that. And we don't have a need for the empowering of the Holy Spirit anymore because we got just enough at baptism and that's all we need. Well, maybe if you want to continue to be an ineffective church or an ineffective believer, if you want to go out into the world and make a difference, you're going to need a little bit more than that little bit that saves you at baptism. And we can talk about this in scriptures more and more if you want, but I don't think you want to be here till three. But the point is that the Spirit came and rested on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues. And from there, they go out into the world, and in Acts chapter 5, man, they're adding to the numbers every day, those who were coming to faith in Christ. They were empowered. So to, to apply this to our lives... I'm not trying to be mean or harsh. I'm just trying to make it very clear that in many circles, we do this wrong. So to apply it, let's look, at, let's look for just a minute at um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 
This is right before Jesus ascended into heaven, and he said in verse 8, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So two things. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit fills you up, and you will be my witnesses. The context is established. Why in the world do we need the power of the Holy Spirit? Because we're called to be witnesses. And when we go out into the world to be witnesses to Christ, we better have a little something, something inside of us because by our own strength, we will win nobody to the kingdom. We can talk till we're blue in the face about our faith and, and, and what we believe and what we've taught, been taught. But if the Spirit's not working through us, we're wasting our time. I've done this, and I know many preachers that do this. I could craft a very well-played-out sermon with three points, an introduction and a conclusion, and it will wow you with the content I put in this. I used to do that for my first two years of ministry. Take me hours to write a sermon. And then God broke me of that. But I could craft an excellent sermon, and it changed not one person's heart. Because I did it through my own strength and my own education and for my own purposes. Isn't it possible then that you could also teach a Sunday school lesson by your strength? Isn't it possible that you could craft together a fellowship dinner for a group of people by your own strength? Isn't it possible that you could take up the offering and serve communion and do a, do a, a communion meditation by your own strength? And people would say, oh, that was so good. Thank you. But if we would just let the Spirit fill us up and do, it, do these ministry, these acts, through the power of the Holy Spirit, people will come, they'll come running. They will come running. So, in Judges chapter 15, and in Luke chapter 10, we're going to connect two passages, which I think are really cool, and how they interact with each other. In Judges 15, this is the story of Samson. You all remember Samson, right? Samson and Delilah, Romeo and Juliet, I forget how the song goes. But anyway, uh, Samson was something else. Remember, Samson is oftentimes depicted as this Herculean-type creature with muscles upon muscles upon muscles, kind of like me. But that's not the case. That's not the case. There is too much evidence to support that when, when Samson would come to the Philistines in order to open up a can, that they would ca- he would catch them off guard because he looked like a normal man. He was not a threat. He was not intimidating. He would come into their midst, and they would be laughing at him. What are you going to do, scrawny? Kind of like Captain America before his transformation, right? A little, little piddly thing. But anyway, uh, Samson was not this huge specimen of muscularity. That's my word. And if I could find it, I'd tell you all about it. 
Anyway, Samson, he wanted immediately when he comes on the scene, he's to be set apart to be a Nazarite, which is Numbers chapter 6 or 7, I don't remember. But he's not supposed to touch the grapes of the vine, the fruit of the vine. He's not supposed to touch a dead animal. He's not supposed to be anywhere near a cemetery. He's supposed to protect his spiritual, his spiritual birth. But he marries a foreigner. And then in chapter 15, he gets involved with, with uh, some more people that are just not good people. It says that in chapter 15, Samson went to take a young goat and went to visit his wife. And he said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go. He said, I was so sure you thoroughly hated her, he said, that I gave her to your friend. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? So the woman that he loved, the father, because he was angry with Samson, gave her to a comrade of his to be married to her, all because of what happened in chapter 14 with him opening up a can, all right? So we don't want to go there. But the fact is, Samson was a little little ticked off by this. That was his wife. Nobody disappoints Samson, right? So Samson had this crazy idea. I'm not going to read it to you, but what he did was he went out in the field and he caught 300 foxes. Now, we've lived in Cordova for four years, and I've only seen two foxes, and it may have been the same fox. I don't know. But where you go, I mean, we've been to Israel. We didn't see, I didn't see any foxes in Israel. But anyway, the point is he caught 300 of them. It, took, it had to take a while. And what he did was he tied their tails together. He tied a torch to their tails, lit the torches, and sent them into the fully grown wheat fields in order to completely burn up all of the produce that the Philistines had been growing. And this was a very effective plan. Not only did the, did the fox burn down all of the wheat, but also destroyed their vineyards and some other oh, olive groves as well. Interesting stuff. But when you go to Luke chapter 10, when you go to Luke 10, and I promise you this is going to make sense in a second. In Luke 10, verse 1, Jesus, or scriptures say, after this, the Lord appointed 72. In chapter 9, he appointed his 12 disciples and commissioned them to go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. In chapter 10, after this, the Lord appointed 72 more people, and he sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. If you skip down to verse... Eight, he says, when you enter town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you, heal the sick where they are, and tell them the kingdom of God is near. Heal the sick, preach the gospel. In verse 17, it says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. In chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus commissioned the 12 and the others to go out and to cast out demons in his name. Threefold ministry plan that he put upon the disciples and now the 72 additional disciples. Why is this important? He sent the disciples out two by two. Just like Samson sent the fox out two by two. Now here's the question to ponder. If Samson would have, have just tied the tails together of the fox and sent them out into the field, how much destruction would have occurred at the hands of two foxes that just happened to have their tails tied together. I think it would be minimal. 
If he were to tie their tails together and to tie the torch into their tails and then sent them into the fields, would there be any change in destructiveness? No. It's not until he lights the torch with the fire that now we have a destructive mechanism in place, something that could truly change lives. Samson sent the fire of God into the fields and consumed everything the Philistines had grown. Jesus calls the 72 and the 12, 84 of them total, and he sends them out. In chapter 9, he says this, just so you know I'm not making this up. When Jesus called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He gave them his power and his authority. The fire of God was upon those 84 disciples. And when they went out into the world to evangelize as witnesses to the kingdom of God, they were extremely effective because of the fire that had fallen upon them and was hovering in them. So I think this is a no-brainer. If we really wanted to make a difference in the life of this world, and we want to, not that the increasing membership is the goal, but if we want to make a difference in this world and really save people for the kingdom of God, are you going to do it without the power of the Holy Spirit? Or would you rather do it with the power of the Holy Spirit? Because without, you can cure nobody. Without, not one demon's going to flee. Without, it's very possible that not one sermon will be adhered to. But with the Holy Spirit at work in you, Jesus said, greater things will you do because I go to the Father, because he will send the comforter who will empower you for this work. But again, if you're content with that little bit of spirit that you got at your baptism, that's fine. But if you're going to do ministry and you want to be effective in this world, and when your little ones are sick and you want to drive out that illness, you might want a little bit more. You might want to dig a little bit deeper into the reservoirs of heaven because he's got a lot of it. He's got a lot of it. I had a thought the other day. It was kind of interesting. Is it possible that you could ever learn everything there is about God on this earth? Could you? Could you read the Bible and get to know it thoroughly and then say, like, I have mastered the Internet? Could you say, I have mastered God? I completely understand everything about him, right? Of course not. Is it possible that you could be so in love with Jesus and he could be so in love with you that at some point you're like, all right, Jesus, back off. I've got enough. I've got everything you have to offer. I don't want anything else. Of course not, because he's the son of God. So is it also possible that the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, is so deep and so rich and so huge that we will never become completely satisfied with how much of the Holy Spirit is at work inside of us? Absolutely not. We haven't even scratched the surface. And the thing that just amazes me is why are so many people content with the little bit of mouth that they have? You know, I, I've told you, I don't want to mention names, but 
told you about a couple very, very close to me that when they celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary, they made it a point to contact me and say, you need to be here to help celebrate the 50th wedding anniversary because this is kind of a big deal, right? And I, and I said to the, to the woman, I said, uh, no, I really don't see that as being an accomplishment because for 30 years, I've never seen you sleep in the same bedroom. I've never seen you hold each other's hands. I've never seen you intimate with each other in any way, shape, or form. Instead, what I have witnessed for 30 years was anger and hatred and bitterness and condescension. So no, I'm not going to be there to celebrate number 50 because I just don't see evidence that this is anything really huge. You tolerated each other. You certainly never loved each other. So why should we as a church be in the business of celebrating people that don't have a love affair with God? Why should we keep patting people on the back when they're depleted and their faith is shallow and they've not grown in years? And God, who loves everyone equally and deeply so much that he would give his own son to die on a cross for us, God is up there disappointed and frustrated and sad with tears in his eyes because his children won't even come and have fellowship with him because they had enough of him back in the 90s. Pentecost Sunday was the the birth of the church, we like to say, and it was the day that the fire of the church was ignited. And ever since that day, the church was supposed to be different. But today, people don't even like going to church. Too much backbiting, too much gossiping, too much hypocrisy. Not only that, but the church is boring. Sermons are boring. Sunday school is boring. Fall festival is boring. Cruise in is boring. Everything's boring. There's another one little passage, and we'll do this quickly. Leviticus chapter 6. I found this interesting. This has to do with the burnt offerings. And in the instructions from God to the priest doing the burnt offerings, he says this, that when you offer the burnt offerings, the priest's job is to put the fire on the altar and to keep the fire burning. In verse 13 of that passage, it says, the fire must be kept burning on the altar continuously. It must never go out. The fact that some people in the church today have allowed the Holy Spirit flames to die out is not so much your fault as the pastoral leadership and the priest who serve the body of Christ. We have failed you. We have not kept the altar adequately stocked with firewood. We have not been adequately kindling the flame and making sure that it continues to glow and to burn and to consume and to purify. So in many ways, we have failed you. And I repent of that as a pastor who for many years didn't even know that was my job. And so I pray for your forgiveness. And I pray for your forgiveness and the fact that I have not adequately held your feet to the fire making sure that you never grow cold in your faith or in your disposition of your spiritual gifts. Maybe we all have a lot of repenting to do because we have all failed in some regards. 
And the whole reason that I care is because I have a heavenly father who keeps talking to me and saying, Darren, why don't you people love me? Why don't your people want to be with me? Why do they not want to know me better? Why do they not love me? And I said, I don't know, God. I don't know. So in the next few weeks, we're going to study Pentecost, the life-changing event of Pentecost, and how it just might revolutionize our spiritual journey. So let's pray. (coughs) Father, we pray that you will forgive us for neglecting you, for neglecting your son, for neglecting your Holy Spirit. The scriptures say that to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable offense. And that simply means, Lord, that we have withdrawn the power of the Holy Spirit. We have negated it by our lack of faith. We have negated it by our lack of desire to have intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we don't want to lose what we have simply because we didn't know. Please, Lord, convict us of our sin, but bring us to a place of repentance and confession so that we can be reinstated, that we can be re-energized and revived. Father, we want more of you. We want to live a life that pleases you. Would you please come, Lord, and, and help us with this? Please forgive us. In Jesus we pray. Amen.
we're going to close in prayer.